Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I am joined once again by the esteemed Rosie Brooks. Rosie, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited. Well, I'm very excited too, because honestly, we've been working our way up to this. Oh, yes. What's on the menu today? Today, we are going to be looking at Gilbert and Sullivan. Yes, and we've played the very first song from the first successful collaboration between the two men. Trial by Jury. Trial by Jury. Now, that's not one of the ones that we we see most frequently played. It's quite a lot shorter than a lot of the other operettas, so it's a smaller ensemble work generally, so it's not done in large theatres very often. But it's quite a popular one with amateur operetta companies, I think. It's quite a nice one to do. It's a one-act, and as opposed to subsequent collaborations between the two of them, every bit of the text is sung. There's no spoken Mm -hmm. parts. Yeah. Well, I had heard that this came into being because they had had a previous collaboration, which is why I introduced this as their first successful collaboration, Thespis. Yeah, I've not seen that or heard that. Well, that is because I have read that most of it has been lost. Uh Aha. I've never known it be put on right. Okay. But that was popular at the time, was it? No, no, it wasn't. Gilbert had said that it was unsuccessful because it was rushed. He didn't have enough control over what was going on, which is a mistake he will not make as time goes along. (laughs) And Sullivan complained that the actors and singers couldn't really sing very well. So things were not teed up for success, even though the two men, Gilbert and Sullivan, are enormously talented. Their first collaboration was not successful, and they didn't get together again for quite some time until they were brought together on this trial by jury piece, which was meant to be an end to an evening, which began with an Offenbach opera. Ah, okay, I didn't realize that. That's interesting. So it was it was part of a, a, a sort of dinner evening as opposed to a standalone theatrical production where right. it would be the whole thing for the evening. Yeah. Because it's just one act and Offenbach's operetta was, was shorter as well. So it worked. Yeah. But Trial by Jury became so popular that the impresario actually switched the order. And instead of putting Trial by Jury on at the end, he put it on first thing. Oh. So it was it was incredibly popular. And one of the lead parts was, in fact, played by Fred Sullivan, the older brother of Arthur Sullivan, the composer. And he got great reviews. Apparently, Fred was very, very talented. He played the role of the learned judge. Wow. So the bit that we just heard in the beginning of this sets the scene. So we're in a courtroom and it has just turned 10 (laughs) (laughs) o'clock. The usher is welcoming the jury, the public, and the judge. The defendant and the plaintiff are yet to arrive. And I feel like he's welcoming us, the audience, as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, as as it's a courtroom, you you feel like you're a part of... You could be on one of the public benches. That's that's the... And I think it is done in... I have a feeling it's done in courtrooms here as a as a sort of theatrical experience. You can go and oh, see Trial fun. by Jury. Yeah. And you see, it's done in the dock. That would um, be, yeah, yeah, you wouldn't need a set, would you? You've got yeah. a set if you did yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the, what's the case? What's going on? The case is the plaintiff, Angelina, has been jilted by Edwin, the defendant, because he moved on quite quickly after he um, 
got together with her, deciding she was a bit of a bore. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> which we will get to hear him explain. <laughs> and Angelina's the counsel for the plaintiff are not happy, and so they are taking legal action against the defendant. As was the case, I think, in Edwardian England. It's, it, it sounds preposterous now, but I think it actually was a reality. I think families, people did do it because of the, the shame, the public shame. Right. A promise mm-hmm. to marriage is, yeah. a, is a legal binding contract. Yeah. And so it's, it's like a broken contract. Yeah. It underscores this reality that marriage was a financial arrangement, not just a love match. Yeah. That her future well-being depends upon him carrying through with his promise of marriage because uh, perhaps he's made her less marriageable by his relationship with her. Well, this is it. She's less eligible, isn't she? If she's been in- engaged to someone else, the implication is she's not necessarily as desirable to another suitor. Right. So yeah. you can see why it would be a legal case, even though it seems yeah. sort of a strange notion to us now to take someone to court because they did not marry you but but they could because it was it was serious okay that's the last bit of seriousness here because this is a fun (laughs) show this is this is in fact even though it's their first successful collaboration I feel like it's very representative of the work that they do yes it's it brings together all the confusion and the the and it resolves itself very well at the end sorry that doesn't make sense does it yeah like a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan operettas that come later there's confusion and dilemma, and then at the end it all comes together. Often quite quickly and unexpectedly, suddenly it's all fine. <laughs> and, and there's a happy coupling yeah. up and marriage yeah. at the end too, but we'll, we'll, we'll save that. <laughs> well, let's hear the defendant explain why he did what he did. When first my old, old love I knew, my bosom welled with joy. My riches at her feet I threw, I was a lovesick boy. No terms seemed too extravagant upon her to employ. I used to mope and sigh and pant, just like a lovesick boy. Tink-a-tank, 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 tink-a-tank. Heard the defendant set out his case in Gilbert and Sullivan's trial by jury. 
Rosie, what's his case? He's the defendant and he has jilted young Angelina and a counsel for the plaintiff are taking him to court to make good on the contract of the engagement to the wedding that he's trying to wriggle out of. And he's trying to defend himself. Yes, on the grounds that he moved on. (laughs) (laughs) On the grounds that he got bored with her. Yeah, yeah. He was lovesick and now he's lovesick for someone else. Well, it's interesting because we heard the ensemble in the very beginning setting the stage of this trial. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to take a look at the, the jury because the jury is in fact our male chorus in this show. Mm-hmm. That's, of course, because the jury was entirely male. Uh-huh. Which does rather put a skew on the opinions regarding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to modern eyes, it's a little shocking when you think that there's going to be an inherent bias for the man in this case. And uh, we're going to just hear a little bit of that where the jury essentially confesses that but then they confess they're not boys anymore they've grown up exactly yeah exactly oh i was like that when a man a shocking young scamp of a roll-up i behaved like a regular cat but that sort of thing is all over i am now a respectable chap and shine with a virtual resplendent and therefore I haven't a scrap of sympathy with the defendant. They should treat us with law if there isn't a flaw. Singing so melody, try a la la, try la la, try la la, singing so melody, try la la. I was the jury in trial by jury and even though we think because they're all men they might be sympathetic to the man in this case they have just told us in their song they haven't a scrap of sympathy for the defendant because they're men and they've grown up now so they see the world differently yes so I understand that Gilbert who was very prolific with his writings didn't necessarily start out being a dramatist. He had some experience in the military mm-hmm. that was cut short because the Crimean War ended. And then he had some legal training. But it seems that before he devoted himself full time to drama, he, even while he was practicing law, he was still interested in, in writing dramas and also Rosie, my illustrator friend. I believe yes. he illustrated things. <laughs> this, this is, and actually this is one of the aspects that drew me into Trial by Jury, my, my way in, because he created a book, Bad Ballads, and there's a lot of wonderful cartoons, which obviously were influenced by when he was working in the legal profession. There's a beautiful one of the jury itself, with the usher addressing the jury, and the jury are all little heads in a box with the word jury on it, so you knew what it was. It's wonderful. <laughs> And I've also heard that his illustrations weren't just a thing of the past before he he got on to having his plays produced, that he used his illustrating talents to design scenery, to convey his vision to those people who were going to be building things like scenery and even costumes. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And they were, I mean, both Gilbert and Solomon were heavily involved in the actual productions, weren't they, the original productions. And in fact, they fell out over an aesthetic in the end as well, didn't they? 
I think there were a lot of strains at the end, as with yeah. any partnership. But it was supposed to be the carpet, wasn't it? The, the rumour was it was over the carpet in the Savoy. That's why they fell out. Whether it's true or not, I do not know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, so we encourage you. I mean, first of all, I think we encourage you to obviously see a Gilbert and Sullivan if you ever get a chance. But you can listen to Trial by Jury on any place that you have access to it. And you can hear the entire story uninterrupted. Yeah. Because it's in English <laughs> and understand it. And uh, it tells the story. It just, it's charming. It's yeah. fun. Yeah, you don't need to, a filter. You can literally just listen to it through and understand the plot compared to some pieces where you need to have the notes and the libretto next door. With this, you can just listen to it through. Well, that's, I think, one of the joys and, and part of the reason for the great success of Gilbert and Sullivan is the accessibility of it. Yeah. Just without preparation. But we're going to have fun with it today, too, and fill in <laughs> a few little historical background pieces and some context. Well, we've got the, the jury there. And uh, what else do we need for our trial? So, so we've got the jury. We have the defendant. Um, we haven't met the judge yet. Oh, should we meet the judge? <laughs> Everyone gets very excited when the judge is about to enter. This feels yeah. very Gilbert and Sullivan to me, yeah. the building up the excitement for the entrance of the judge. And then the judge springs on the scene and he lets us know about himself. Uh-huh. The judge arrives to the words, and when I was first called to the bar. Yes, he's telling us his story and how he became a judge. <laughs> and it's, a, it's a little unsavory. <laughs> <laughs> When I, good friends, was called to the bar, I'd an appetite fresh and hearty. But I was, as many young barristers are, an impecunious party. I'd a swallowtail coat of a beautiful blue, and a brief which I'd bought of a booby. A couple of shirts and a collar or two, and a ring that looked like a ruby. In Westminster Hall I danced a dance like a semi-despondent fury For I thought I never should hit on a chance of addressing a British jury But I soon got tired of third-class journeys and dinners of bread and water So I fell in love with Richard Turney's elderly ugly daughter So I fell in love with Richard Turney's elderly ugly daughter The rich attorney, he jumped with joy and replied to my fond professions. It's a rape the reward, you pluck me boy, at the Bailey and Middlesex sessions. You'll soon get used to her looks, said he, and a very nice girl you will find. Oh, she very well pass for 43 in the dusk with a light behind. She very well pass for 43 in the dusk with a light behind. The rich attorney was good as his word, the briefs came trooping gaily. And every day my voice was heard at the sessions on ancient bailey. All thieves who called my fees of war relied on my operations. And many a burglar I've restored to his friends and his relations. And many a burglar is restored to his friends and his relations. <laughs> At 
length I became as rich as the gurneys, and he give us then I thought her. So I threw over that rich attorney's elderly, ugly daughter. The rich attorney, my character high, tried vainly to disparage. No! Yes! And now, if you please, I'm ready to try this breach of promise of marriage. And now, if you please, he's ready to try this breach of promise of marriage. For now, I'm a judge. And a good judge, so. Yes, now I'm a judge. And a good judge, so. Though all my law be fat, yet I'll never, never vote. But I live and die a judge. And a good judge, so. <laughs> so this is the judge who is going to be in charge of this trial. And um, <laughs> you would think he'd have a little bit of prejudice in this case. Well, given his story, he's not exactly um, pot calling the kettle black somehow, isn't it? <laughs> oh, my word. He's... Yeah, you think it's, it's offensive enough what he's saying or fu- funny and offensive what he's saying but then for the chorus to repeat it back it's like just to confirm to, um, to make 43 in the dusk with the light behind her and then the chorus sing it as well well first of all it's it's part of how the chorus gets used in these Gilbert and Sullivan yeah. pieces the chorus is always a presence and they have a way of underlining what's going on and mm. and normalizing it or making it seem like, yep, this is our yeah. world. This yep. is how things happen. I meant that. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, there's no, uh, they're not criticizing him. They're not, they're just vocal backup and yeah. affirmation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny. Well, he finishes up by saying I'm ready to try this breach of promise of marriage and he's a very good judge (laughs) so we have our defendant we have our jury we have our judge but we're lacking our plaintiff Mm -hmm. and to underscore her plight the plaintiff is preceded by a group of people well given that the plaintiff is in a wedding dress (laughs) the group that she's with are, as you would expect, her supporting act are the bridesmaids and they precede her. One of them catches the judge's eye because he obviously is easily turned, put it that way. And then she follows as they arrive. So the next track is them arriving. It's all very frilly and it's that that Gilbert and Salem sort of magical style that they do. Right. So again, this would be utterly absurd and unreal <laughs> in any sort of proper drama but in a comedy why not we have a whole pack of bridesmaids entering in we'll hear just a snatch of their song to get a feel for the scene as it now has been more feminized with all these women coming on board and by the way this gives our female chorus in balance to the male chorus which is the jury mm-hmm. so this is come the broken flower that was the bridesmaids and now we're going to have the counsel for the plaintiff with a sense of deep emotion i approach this painful case 
For I never had a notion that a man could be so base. Oh, deceive a girl confiding, false, etc. Interesting client, victim of a heartless wife. See the traitor, all defiant, wear a supercilious smile. Sweetly smiled my client on him, coyly would and gently won him. Sweetly smiled his client on him. Honey does, and with this unmanly male, Tamble became a dog. Become an Arcadian veil. Bring the concentrated auto, turn existence and a motto. My client naming and insisting on the day, picture him excuses blaming, going from another way. Public criminal to do so, for the maid and daughter to so. is one sad plaintiff. Did you hear her wailing? (laughs) Oh, poor dear. And the council is pointing out to us, not only has she been disappointed, she spent a lot of money on her trousseau. Yeah, (laughs) which is a word I've only just learned. (laughs) Ah, what did they used to call it? Um, A hope chest? You know, that a woman would have have a chest that she put her things into so it was I suppose she would still keep that but a trousseau I mean I remember people talking to me about a trousseau many years ago it's that all those new clothes you buy to enter onto your married life because presumably you dress differently as a married woman than as a young maid Uh (laughs) but she's but she's totally bereft and and he's playing on their sympathies. And once again, the chorus just chimes in to affirm. Exactly. And Trousseau rhymes with do so. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, that's something Gilbert was very good at, the appropriate yeah. rhyme. <laughs> well, the defendant, now that the judge is in place, the defendant is going to explain himself. He takes another tack now, doesn't he? So the defendant now puts his case across that in the same way that one eats breakfast and lunch and dinner, that one needs variety in one's life. And um, (laughs) therefore, his outlook on the circumstances is completely reasonable. I mentioned there was a a case in the UK press a few years ago where a famous individual, a famous couple, married couple, the, the gentleman was caught in a situation with 
a less than salubrious lady. And his justification for it was when you eat at the Ivy every night, sometimes you just want McDonald's. The Ivy being a very fine dining restaurant. (laughs) Please tell me that that was not a successful defense. (laughs) I don't think so. <laughs> but that's well. He took it from he took it from Gilbert because yeah. because our defendant is saying, "I'm only obeying the laws of nature. <laughs> you can't have two Mondays together. We have to have variety." He says, "You can't you can't look upon a man as a glutton if, when he's tired of beef, he turns to mutton." It just has so many obnoxious connotations as well. Oh, it's terrible. He does conclude the song by saying, fine, I'll marry this young lady today and I'll marry my new love tomorrow. Yeah. (laughs) How's that go over? Not very well, because obviously even back then that was a crime, as it very much is now. (laughs) Yes, yes. A nice dilemma we have here. A nice dilemma we have here. That calls for all our wit, for all our wit. And at this stage, it don't appear that we can settle it. If I to wear the girl of love, Breach will surely be And if it goes and buries both It comes as burglary A nice dinner A nice dinner A nice dinner from the review that the Times wrote when this show opened applying to this particular piece. He says, a clever parody on one of the most renowned finales of modern Italian opera. What's being parodied here? The opera is Bellini's La Sonna Ombila, Sleepwalker. Dun Pensiero. And it's this beautiful finale at the end. You can find clips all over the place on YouTube Mm. because it's very popular to this day. But it's interesting. The reviewer picked up on that by listening to this show, seeing the show. And he was appreciating some of the references that Gilbert was putting in. Gilbert used lots of references to his own work, to other people's work. But um, I'm told this is the most that this is the most sustained effort parodying an existing piece of operatic work. And Mm. I find it very successful. (laughs) 
I love this is the one that made me really just go wow look at what they're pulling off in this little (laughs) one-act opera it's it's amazing I love that piece well they've only underscored that it's a dilemma we have no solution and we are coming to the end of this show (laughs) how in heaven's name Rosie are we going to resolve this dilemma There's more background. He adds a little bit of context to the situation. That context is that he's an absolute nightmare when he's drunk and therefore she's better off not marrying him anyway because of his terrible, shocking behaviour when he gets drunk. Yes, in fact, he's he's quite clear that he's he will be abusive. Yeah. Violent, all sorts of things. (laughs) And he's drunk all the time. Yes. Well, in order to prove that the defendant is as terrible as he says he is when he's drunk the only solution that they can see is that they get him drunk to see if he is indeed as bad as he says he is that seems to be the the most sensible way to sort this out and they all seem to be happy with that and even the defendant's quite happy with that because it means he can get drunk (laughs) (laughs) yes although the the plaintiff and her attorney are not entirely (laughs) thrilled with this option could be dangerous. And just as we're getting excited to see how that plays out, there's a new solution proposed. Well, the, ju- the judge then gets involved, having sort of overseen what was going on, and decides he's had quite enough of the whole thing, and that he will marry the plaintiff instead, and that everything is fine now. And there we are. <laughs> <laughs> Tie a bow on it. Final. We have our happy ending. Exactly. Final curtain. <laughs> <laughs> With a little bit of singing. Oh, joy, a rapture. That seems the situation seems to be resolved. Yeah, and a big ensemble piece to yeah. send us out on our merry way from the theater. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, that's Trial by Joy. Let's hear this final piece, Oh, Joy Unbounded. Oh, joy unbounded with wealth around and the nearly sound of free and gold. With love defaulted on you. To castle molded away they go. I wonder whether they live together in marriage tether in manner true. It seems to me, sir, of such as she, sir, a judge is he, sir, and a good judge too. Oh, joy unbounded with wealth surrounded, the very song and the brief and woe. It seems to me, sir, of such as she, sir, a judge. Yes, I am a judge. Yes, I am a judge. Oh, oh, but as you judge, you declare my law is for gender beauty. I'm a judge. The defendant is a snob. The defendant is a for everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm here with Rosie Brooks. Hi, Rosie. Hello. (laughs) We we have presented Trial by Jury, Gilbert Sullivan's first successful one-act comic opera. In spite of the success of Trial by Jury, they didn't immediately put out other operas. The next one was called Hmm. The Sorcerer, 
which enjoyed success in its day, but far overshadowed in terms of continuing popularity is the opera that we're going to present right now. Which is HMS Pinafore. So HMS Pinafore premiered in 1878, as opposed to Trial by Jury, which was 1875. This was the beginning of the string of successful comic operas that Gilbert and Sullivan produced together. I think it's worth noting that typically when we talk about an opera, we refer to the composer, the composer with a mention for the librettist. And yet everyone knows this creative duo. Yeah, Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah, they're absolutely, they're referred to as Gilbert and Sullivan. Then it's never just Arthur Sullivan. It's always the two and G&S. But they were absolute, the strength of the duo was definitely equal pegging. Right. With Mm. Gilbert's name first, in fact, the dramatist, the librettist. So HMS Pinafore. Mm -hmm. Set in Portsmouth on Her Majesty's ship. And the scene opens with the sailors all cleaning the brass and splicing the rope. Did you know that Gilbert even went to visit the HMS Victory, which was anchored at Portsmouth, in order to sketch it? so that he could have a good realistic sense of what uh, a proper HMS ship would look like for his drama. So he went on board the HMS Victory and sketched it out, and he built a model, and he had little blocks that he made. Three inches tall, the blocks were for the men, two and a half inches tall, representing the women. (laughs) Yeah. And he even color-coded them so that the tenors were one color, the baritones were a color, the basses were another, sopranos, and on and on. Everybody had a different color. And he figured out all of the staging with this model based on this actual ship. Wow. So he was not leaving any of this to chance. He was very much in control of how this was going to look. Shall we meet our sailors who set the scene for us at the at the opening on the HMS Pinafore. ship we've got sailors they're about their business and a new person is going to board the hms pinafore we're about to meet mrs cripps otherwise known as little buttercup the bumboat woman yes buttercup has all kinds of good things to interest the sailors and she's going to tell us about them as she introduces herself as little buttercup even though she is a mature woman. I'm called Little Buttercup, dear Little Buttercup, though I could never tell why. But still I'm called Buttercup, poor Little Buttercup, sweet Little Buttercup, I. I've snuffed and 
like Caesars and watches and knives. I've ribbons and laces to set up the faces of pretty young sweethearts and wives. I've treacle and toffee, I've tea and I've coffee, soft tommy and succulent chops. I've chickens and coolies and pretty Excellent peppermint drops. Then buy a new buttercup, dear little buttercup. Sailors should never be shy. So buy a new buttercup, dear little buttercup. little buttercup and someone else is coming on to the great ship the hms pinafore the dashing young ralph rackstraw yes are, are we going to agree to call him ralph because i know that typically he's referred to as rafe in performance i i think ralph i think rafe okay is, is, i i know i know a few rafes but i think they're silly i think ralph is fine <laughs> okay we'll call we'll call him ralph then <laughs> But when Buttercup hears the name Ralph, how does she react? This is where there's an extra layer. She's not just the joyful, frivolous seller of ribbons and scissors. Suddenly she hints that there might be more to her. She might know something else about a depth of what's going on when he arrives. We just hear her briefly say, remorse, remorse. But that's all left behind because Rafe comes on introducing himself with the sailors and then he transitions into what's really on his mind. The beautiful maiden Josephine, who is the captain's daughter and the loveliest lady around. Yes, so he's in love with her. But, but of course, as with any good story, there's going to be an impediment to their love. And he's going to tell us about it in this song. What's the impediment? He's not classy enough for her. <laughs> <laughs> he's lowly born. He's and lowly she born. is the captain's daughter. Exactly. <laughs> The maiden fair to see, the pearl of minstrelsy, the bud of blushing beauty, for whom proud nobles sigh and with each other vie to do her menial's duty. Suitor lowly born with hopeless passion torn and poor beyond denying has dared for her to pine at whose exalted shrine a world of wealth is sighing. And learned he in Save that which love has taught, for love had been his
have a sense of who Ralph is and what's on his mind. And we have another character enter the scene and appear on the deck of the HMS Pinafore. And everyone's very excited about this man entering. It is the gentleman and popular Captain Corcoran. Yes, his men love him. And he does come off as a little self-important <laughs> in front of his in front of his sailors, but they love him anyway. He's he's a good captain. Yeah. And they say that repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's got a little bit of connection. He he will tell us he's related to a peer. And well, let's let him introduce himself. <laughs> Good morning, sir. Good morning. I hope you're all quite well. Quite well. And you, sir? I am in a reasonable health and happy to meet you all once more. You do us proud, sir. Understood, I command a right good crew. We're very, very good, and be it understood, he commands a right good crew. Though related to a peer, I can hand reef and steer or ship a silver G. I am never known to quail at the fury of a gale, and I'm never, never sick at sea. What never? Oh, never. What never? Well, hardly ever. He's hardly ever sick at sea. Exceedingly polite, and I think it only right to return a compliment. We're exceedingly polite, and he thinks it only right to return a compliment. Bad language or abuse, I never, never use, whatever the emergency. Though bother it, I may occasionally say, I never use a big, big D. What, never? Oh, never. What, never? to HMS Pinafore on Opera for Everyone. And Rosie, I have to say, this is one of my favorite songs from the show. Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's impossible to sit completely still when you're listening to this song. It does make you want to bob around, actually, yeah. <laughs> it does. And I love how one of the ways the captain presents himself is by saying, I'm never, ever sick at sea. <laughs> what, never? Well, hardly ever. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I have heard that, that this is one of those little exchanges, those lines that completely made it into the popular culture 
in the great popularity of Pinafore. Oh, wow. Yeah. Where someone would say, I never, never do something. And the reply would be, never? Well, hardly ever. (laughs) (laughs) And also, as another claim for his uh, captainship, one of the reasons he's such an excellent captain is that he never swears, again, well, hardly ever. Uh, But he would never use bad language such as the big, big D, which we presume in Edwardian times was damn which would have been the equivalent of all sorts of things now, but makes the piece very suitable, obviously, for, for any sort of broadcast because, you know, there's no swearing in it. No, they, these are comic characters who are self-important. And again, it's it's that thing where it's very silly situation for him to be speaking this way, but it's completely normalized with the affirmation of this chorus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're ludicrous plots, but the characters all play it like like it's completely reasonable. Oh, totally. And and the chorus says, we're quite content. And he says, you're very polite. None of this swearing like a sailor stuff. They're yeah, just yeah, yeah. very polite. They treat each other with respect and kindness. And it's just all a wonderful place to be on this HMS pinafore. <laughs> and then we get a little interaction with Buttercup and the captain. So this describes, moving the plot forward a little, it describes that... The captain has a dilemma, as is often the case in a Gilbert Sullivan operetta, and that is that he wants his daughter Josephine to marry Sir Joseph Porter, but she's not that sure. And Sir Joseph Porter is not just a sir, he has quite an exalted position. Sir Joseph Porter's first Lord of the Admiralty, which I suppose it doesn't get much shiny of a mass at least. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, exactly. He is the tippy top in the naval hierarchy. He is, he he would be quite a match for a captain's daughter, honestly. Mm-hmm. Speaking of class consciousness, <laughs> which, truth be told, is very much what this show is about. Yeah, yeah. And the captain obviously wants his daughter to marry Sir Joseph, but Josephine is not convinced. Yes, and, and Buttercup has a comment to make to the captain. When he presents this dilemma, she says, Ah, poor Sir Joseph, I know too well the anguish of a heart that loves but vainly. So perhaps there's some unrequited love for poor Buttercup. Sounds like it. Mm, But we have another character entering the stage who will present herself to us in song. This is Josephine herself. Right. The daughter of the captain and the beloved of Ralph the sailor. So 
You're listening to HMS Pinafore, the comic opera by Gilbert and Sullivan, and that was Josephine, the captain's daughter. Well, it turns out it's not only Sir Joseph, perhaps, and Buttercup, perhaps, who can't have their desires and love fulfilled with their beloved. Josephine's got a bit of a problem, too. She loves a humble sailor, but she won't say who. But she loves her father as well, so... Duty or love. <laughs> it's a tough position for dear Josephine, our, our beautiful, dare I say straight character, in that she's not playing the comic elements. She's not hamming it up the way so many of these others do. Yeah. Well, is it time to introduce another character to the HMS Pinafore? This is the very shiny First Lord of the Admiralty, Sir Joseph Porter. He arrives on board with his crowd of... Is it sisters, aunts, sisters, cousins, and aunts? Quite <laughs> <laughs> why? It's not explained. <laughs> he yes, he he travels with an entourage. <laughs> Thank you. 
I think we've discovered why he needs to travel with such an entourage of women. <laughs> well, it's because he's the ruler of the Queen's Navy. <laughs> yes, and, and I think we need a female chorus to balance out the male chorus of sailors. <laughs> well, well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you've got to give credit. In both of these shows that we're listening to, he's got a male chorus and he's got a female chorus. And so the Lord of the Admiralty has to have sisters and cousins and aunts. <laughs> and bring them everywhere he goes. You know, you, you listen to this and you think, yes, of course I understand why this is popular. But just because it's popular doesn't mean that everyone appreciated Sullivan's talents going to this sort of work. Because, you know, Sullivan was a much more recognized and accomplished public figure and artist when yeah, this was yeah, yeah. presented than Gilbert was. Yeah, he was he was a serious composer, wasn't he? Um, I he don't was. know when he became a sir, but he was definitely involved with the proms and things like that. So I think, it, yeah, pe- people could be, they were a bit snobbish about the partnership, certainly from at the beginning, I think, weren't they? Well, yes, yeah. the beginning and then, as you mentioned, when he got yeah. knighted. We can talk a little bit more about the knighting because yeah. ultimately both Gilbert and Sullivan were knighted, but Sullivan much earlier than, than Gilbert. Yeah. Sullivan honestly was a musical prodigy and he won a lot of scholarships and got a lot of musical training yeah. both in England and on the continent. And in fact, one little tidbit that I found interesting, the hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, he wrote the music for that hymn. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was 1871. It was a pre-existing wow. hymn, but it wasn't, it never gained popularity until the original oh, he, music was set aside and, and Sullivan wrote his He wrote his versions. Didn't he do Nearer My God to Thee as well? The one that the Titanic went down to? I think he did, a, I think he did an arrangement of it. It was, an, it was an earlier hymn, but I think he might have done. Yeah, I mean, we're told that he imagined himself as a composer of, of, elevated music like oratorios and grand mm. operas and life sometimes has different plans yeah 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 <laughs> in fact one of the things he says about working with gilbert um this was later on but when he was interviewed by a reporter he was complimenting gilbert and said simply that gilbert's ideas are as suggestive for music as they are quaint and laughable his numbers always give me musical ideas that's lovely. It was a it was a matchup, and he was inspired by Gilbert's writings. Mm. Gilbert was a skilled dramatist, and and obviously amazing with words. But yeah, you don't always know where your life is going to lead. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, after that aside, let's get back to this first Lord of the Admiralty. Uh-huh. <laughs> he has he has more to tell us, and we'll have more yet. But now his his aim in life is just to tell the world that he is the monarch of the sea. The monarch of the sea. Well, that's that's quite something. Yeah. <laughs> I am the monarch of the sea, the ruler of the Queen's Navy, whose praise Great Britain loudly chants. And we are his sisters and his cousins and his aunts. And we are his sisters and his cousins and his aunts. His sisters and his cousins and his aunts. When an anchor here I ride, my bosom swells with pride, and I snap my fingers at the foeman's tongue. And so do his sisters and his cousins and his aunts. And so do his sisters and his cousins and his aunts. His sisters and his cousins and his aunts. 
but when the breezes blow, I generally go below and seek the seclusion that I can in grants. And so do his sisters and his cousins and his aunts. And so do his sisters and his cousins and his aunts. And so do his sisters and his cousins and his aunts. His sisters and his cousins will be reconciled with and his aunts. You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. For everyone, it airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts where you can find a rich trove of past episodes. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by special guest co-host Rosie Brooks. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by Rosie Brooks. Hello. Hi, Rosie. Well, before we get going into continuing the story of the HMS Pinafore on this episode of Opera for Everyone, I'd like to take a moment to say thank you to the performers who made the CD that we're listening to. This recording was made in the mid-20th century in the UK. The conductor was Sir Malcolm Sargent, and he's leading the Pro Art Orchestra and the Glyndebourne Festival Chorus. And Rosie, can you tell us about the singers on this CD? Yes, fabulous. So we've got George Baker, who is the judge in Trial by Jury, and Sir Joseph Porter in Pinafore, L.C. Morrison, the plaintiff in Trial by Jury, and Josephine in Pinafore, Richard Lewis, the defendant in Trial by Jury, and Ralph Brackstraw in Pinafore, John Cameron, who plays the counsel for the plaintiff in Trial by Jury, and Captain Corcoran in Pinafore, Owen Brannigan, who is the usher in Trial by Jury, and Dick Deadeye, And finally, Monica Sinclair, who's Little Buttercup in Pinafore. Yes, and we have not yet met Dick Deadeye, but we will. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We will, and he, because he's considered to be the villain of the piece. Well, thank you all for this wonderful recording that we're enjoying so much. And it is time for the Opera Helmet Quiz. Well, it's going to be a little different this time because we're not going to review Trial by Jury because we finished that in the first half. But we have embarked upon HMS Pinafore. And honestly, I think we've we've met most, but not all, of the major characters. So we've met Little Buttercup, who sets the scene on the boat with her wares that she sells to all the sailors. We've met Ralph Rackstraw, the dashing tenor. Yes. (laughs) We've met Josephine. The love interest, the captain's daughter. We've met the captain, Captain Porter, and the captain of the pinafore. We've met Sir Joseph Porter, who the captain wants Josephine to marry, but she's not so sure. Yes, and he's very high ranking as the first yes. lord of the Admiralty. And that's it, isn't it? Have we met? We're yet to meet. Well, and we have our male chorus of the sailors, Uh, and we have our female chorus of the sisters and the cousins and the aunts. The sisters and the cousins and the aunts, yes. (laughs) Of Sir Joseph Porter. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yes, and we finished the first half by listening to Sir Joseph Porter, who's just making his entrance, telling us he is the monarch of the sea. So we're going to finish off his introduction right now, because he has yet another song where he tells us 
how he came to be in charge of the Queen's Navy. When I was a lad, I served a term as office boy to an attorney's firm. I cleaned the windows and I swept the floor, and I polished up the handle of the big front door. I polished up that handle so carefully that now I am the ruler of the Queen's Navy. As office boy, I made such a mark that they gave me the post of a junior clerk. I served the writs with a smile so bland, and I copied all the letters in a big round hand. I copied all the letters in a hand so free that now I am the ruler of the Queen's Navy. Serving writs, I made such a name that an article clerk I soon became. I wore clean collars and a brand new suit for the pass examination at the Institute. For the pass examination at the Institute. That pass examination did so well for me that now I am the ruler of the Queen's Navy. That pass examination did so well for me that now he is the ruler of the Queen's of legal knowledge I acquired such a grip that they took me into the partnership and the junior partnership I ween was the only ship I ever had seen. Was the only ship we ever had seen. But that kind of ship so suited me that now I am the ruler of the Queen's Navy. But that kind of ship so suited me that now he is the ruler of the Queen's I grew so rich that I was sent by a pocket borough into Parliament. I always voted at my party's call, and I never thought of thinking for myself at all. I thought so little they rewarded me by making me the ruler of the Queen's Navy. Now lands one all, whoever you may be, if you want to rise to the top of the tree, if your soul isn't fettered to an office stool, be careful to be guided by this golden rule. Be careful to be guided by this golden rule. Stick close to your desks and never go to sea, and you all may be rulers of the Queen's Navy. Stick close to your desks and never go to sea, and you all may be rulers of the Queen's Navy. Well, that's First Lord of the Admiralty, Sir Joseph Porter, and it's a fascinating recommendation to become an elevated person serving in the Queen's Navy. Yeah, I mean, anyone can do it by the sounds of it. (laughs) Well, I I think it depends on station to begin with. Uh I don't know about you, but this song reminds me of the song in How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Yeah, the premise, yeah. Oh, the entire premise. But there's there's also a song that explains that you just don't, you don't make waves. You just, you're a yes man. And and that's exactly what he's yeah. saying here. Which is, you know, it's, it's interesting because I keep seeing, even just the plot of this one, Operetta, I'm seeing resonances in so many major American musicals which isn't surprising when you realize that a lot of people consider Gilbert and Sullivan to be the godfathers of the American musical tradition. Yeah, of light opera, so light, and then, then moving into musical, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously there are other, other elements as well, but, but there's a lot here, and there's a, there's a lot mm. of um, 
there are a lot of artists who took a lot of inspiration from Gilbert and Sullivan in the United States, for sure. Yeah, yeah. There's the, the Patter songs as well in the UK. I think that became, that span off out of control in terms of popular music. There's definitely, there was a culture of comedy songs. And I think it started in Gilbert and Sullivan, the very, very fast, very wordy songs, like parlor songs. Yeah. Right. With clever witticisms and mm -hmm. intricate rhyme schemes. Yeah. Yeah. And in jokes and things like that. There's a, a duo called Kit and the Widow in, uh, I think they might have retired now, and, and Flanders and Swan, those kind of very silly, very wordy. And I think that it all began with Gilbert and Sullivan, definitely. While we're on this topic, since you're from the UK, grew up in the UK, could you talk to us a little bit about the presence of Gilbert and Sullivan in popular entertainment? Well, it's definitely the most popular in terms of Amdram, amateur dramatics, I think. It's as in terms of live performance done in village halls and small groupings. I think it's one of the easiest where sort of school, I, we did the Mikado at school because it seemed perfectly reasonable for a an all-girls school in Twickenham to, to attempt something like that. Whereas we, we couldn't have done Tosca or <laughs> something more, you know, something, something. the fact it's all comedy and silly, it meant that it was perfectly reasonable. Slightly questionable now looking back on some of the costumes, but Gilbert and Sullivan generally, it's, it's, it was part of, and still is, I think, part of the, the culture of putting on shows in village halls because the scale, like Trial by Jury, you could do it with eight people and it's sort of any of them, the, the size of the choruses you can vary yes I, I saw pirates actually i saw pirates of penzance last year in the pandemic it's the only live thing i saw ah. at hollow park they put it on in the park outdoors outdoors and it was because it because it's so recognizable and i think it was an eight strong cast because they, they were able to do it and they were all quickly putting on dressing gowns and all the rest of it running around and would you say that the, the tunes are largely familiar to people? In, in the UK, yeah, yeah, very, very well known. And they'll be dropped into conversation. They'll be, and, and the way to talk as well, like repeating back, the, the um, chorus repeating back to you. Yes. Like that clip in, in this, what, what never, what never, hardly ever. I think that, that that's, it probably did affect the way people use company. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I think it's also, I don't think it's to the extent that it is in the UK, but I think in the US, Gilbert and Sullivan is produced in colleges and, you yeah. know, amateur productions. And also there are, are different Gilbert and Sullivan focused groups that yeah. exist to this yeah. day. In fact, even in my little town in Wyoming, we had one come through a few years back where they just did Gilbert and Sullivan, which was fascinating. I think and when, when they go for it, they really, really do. The film director, Mike Lee, is a Gilbert and Sullivan fanatic. Topsy-turvy. Yeah, he did the film Topsy-turvy, but he also put on productions of Pirates of Penzance at, at the International oh. Opera. He directed them and he is uh, absolute obsessive. And I think when people really do go down the rabbit hole with it, they, they really do. Well, there's a lot there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as long as we're talking about that, let's talk about HMS Pinafore. In the time that it was first produced in the late 19th century, it was wildly successful in London mm -hmm. where it premiered and continued to play for quite some time. And I understand that they printed an official lyrics and piano score. And some Americans got hold of that and took it back to the U.S. And there were scores of unauthorized productions of HMS Pinafore. Oh, I see. And they might have used Gilbert and Sullivan's name. They might not have. They didn't have the orchestrations. So whoever was putting yeah. it on had to come up with their own orchestrations. 
But it was quite a concern for Gilbert, for Sullivan, and for the empresario Richard Doilycart. Richard Doilycart, he's the empresario who brought them together to do Mm. trial by jury and then Pinafore and and on and on and on. That's it. really interesting in terms of it was probably one of the first international copyright major infringements that that was taken on board because it was before the ability to reproduce with records and vinyl and that kind of thing, but to to reproduce the actual mechanical rights to the, and the, the, not the performance rights, but the music rights. Well, I understand that the the US and the UK at that point did not have reciprocal rights agreements. So by they, they weren't actually breaking any laws in the U.S., but it was of concern because clearly mm. Gilbert, Sullivan, and Doilycart were missing out. So the yeah. only way for them to fight it was they actually went over to the U.S., based themselves in New York, and Gilbert and Sullivan surreptitiously visited a bunch of these performances, and they were appalled because, oh. the well, the orchestrations for the most part, were of much lower quality, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. than what Sullivan himself had written. And they they took liberties in terms of Americanizing some of the jokes. And what's the best way to put this? They inserted things that Gilbert and Sullivan considered to be in bad taste. Because one of the hallmarks uh. of their successful productions is that, yes, it pokes fun at the aristocracy or the Navy or the English people, but it's done kind-heartedly and gently. Yeah. And it's satire. It's the, in the tradition of satire as opposed to lampooning and things. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't wicked. It wasn't vulgar. Yeah. And in fact, one of the reasons they grew to be so popular was that people who shied away from comedy productions because of the, yeah. the risque, vulgar nature, they were okay with what mm. Gilbert and Sullivan did. So they, they were very careful where they positioned themselves. But some of these... Yeah pirated productions in the U.S. were not abiding by those standards. Wow. So they they went to New York and put on, ultimately, an official version of HMS Pinafore, which with Gilbert, remember how careful he was with all of the, yeah. <laughs> all of the actions and motions and intonations. It was wildly successful, needless to say, in New York. And that then took them out to, to America themselves as opposed to the version. Right. Interestingly, one category of productions that they weren't so unhappy with was that it was put on kind of like what you were saying in your own growing up years church choirs put them on these amateur productions and they of course didn't move towards the risque and the vulgar and so it was seen as, as a sort of a stamp of purity and approval and not commercial either so if they're not making money from it in a way it's it's like today people will give an educational license for something as long as it's not for profit it's not yeah. for commercial use that's quite nice yeah it, and one of these the philadelphia church choir company their production was so successful that they actually turned into a professional company and moved to new york and it was one of the few productions that sullivan didn't dislike oh wow okay yeah. okay but wait there's more <laughs> there's more <laughs> that's because the musical director and the one who prepared the orchestrations was none other than john philip sousa Oh, wow. Yeah. Known to history as the March King yeah. because of all of his very inspiring yeah. patriotic type marches like Stars and Stripes Forever or uh, Semper Fidelis, the, the official march of the United States Marine Corps. But he also wrote many, many operettas inspired by Gilbert and Sullivan, something we don't we don't talk about that so much. Wow. I, I know him from the Liberty Bell. That's the that's the and it's Liberty Bell. Is that the Monty Python theme tune? 
Oh, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of in the UK. The Caesar is, is I'm not going to sing it, but you're the, one, the, the most famous yeah. Caesar march. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All of these marches. That's how we, mm. that's how I know Caesar. I think of him again yeah. as the March King, but, but apparently he wrote lots and lots of operettas having essentially studied Gilbert and Sullivan by being a musical director of many of their productions. Wow. So what can you tell us about Doily Cart? He was responsible for bringing them together and he formed the Doily Cart Opera Company. He was the impresario that commercialized the two quite different personalities, I think, and was he was the third person. And he was in the money side of things, so it wouldn't have got going without him. And it's Gilbert Sullivan's synonymous with Doily Cart, I think, that obviously there were other productions, but you kind of think of those as the original. But I think from what I've read later on, he was also part of when they fell out and when it came to an end, that he was part of the bone contention. Right. Well, because they formed a partnership, the three of them, to create this theatre, the ownership, share expenses, share profits. Yeah. Um, but the dynamic was obviously slightly strained in that Richard Doily Cart was suggesting a separate opera company, opera house rather, and they wanted to build something else. And then the control of the finances, I think, was ultimately, it, the, the cliche is that it was the carpet that they fell out over the carpet. But right. it's obviously symbolic of a lot, lot more. But the carpet quarrel is, is the running joke. <laughs> right. It's yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the straw that broke the camel's back. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. Well, they did they did stay together and, and do a, a fair number of other operettas that were wildly popular. And the fact that Gilbert and Sullivan is known to this day and that there are groups of performers who devote themselves to their work. That's yeah. that's remarkable. And the Savoy, the Savoy Theatre is quite commercial and it has West End shows in it. But the Savoy Hotel still has huge references to Gilbert and Sullivan. All the private rooms are all the Mikado Pirates, HMS Pinafore <laughs> and things like that. And I think they've got cocktails on the menu. It's all connected. Oh, that sounds fun. That and Peach Melba, they're the two opera connections. They, they do, like um, Lohengrin, the swan from Lohengrin. That's, that's oh. the other opera connection. They were the singer, but she was singing the main part in it, and they invented the Peach Melba there for her. Oh, that was Savoy. I do love a Peach Melba. <laughs> I didn't realize that's where... I knew that it was connected to the singer. I didn't realize it was connected to the Savoy. Yeah, the so much to know. All right, so back to our story. We have met the First Lord of the Admiralty. He's told us all about himself. And he, like Captain Corcoran, in these elevated positions, explains that he lacks some of the qualifications you might assume someone would have. <laughs> it's part of that gentle poking of fun. And then we have the chorus of the sailors get together and this male chorus of sailors sings about all the qualities that make the British sailor or the British tar a wonderful, wonderful human being and of great service and dignity. A British tar is a soaring soul, as free as a mountain bird. His energetic fists should be ready to resist a dictatorial world. His lips should turn, his cheeks should flame, and his brow should furl, his bosom should heave, and his heart should clutch, and his fist should be ready for a dog. Meanwhile, 
What's going on in the story with our two star-crossed lovers, Josephine and Ralph? Ralph has declared undying love for Josephine, and he's a handsome, dashing tenor, as one would expect in these circumstances, but he is of low birth, and she is the captain's daughter. Mm. So he's a never-smooth, never-never calm waters. (laughs) (laughs) So she explains to him that it cannot be because... It's, yeah, he's not classy enough for her. <laughs> right. It's it's a it's too huge a hurdle. She can't overcome it. And Ralph then has what we might call a little bit of a pity party here. He's he's just <laughs> he's he's suffering. He's suffering so. And as he sings about his suffering, Dick Deadeye shows up and reminds him how low he is. And Dick Deadeye is what passes for a villain in this piece. Yes, yeah. And we, also, the, the dead eye, one presume that's an excuse for a patch, a yes. sort of piratical patch. Yeah. It's a good way to convey that from a stage. But he says, oh, no, you're just a slave and she's a lady and forget it. That will never be. You two will never mm-hmm. get together. And Ralph accepts the reality of this. Yeah. And he decides there's only one action to take in that case. So he puts a pistol to his head. In this version, he does, not he? Yes, and he says, my friends, my leave of life I'm taking. And he's about to do himself in. But this is a comedy after all. Josephine is like, oh, all right then. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out I do hand. love you, really. When I pressed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she does. She does. And that leads to... The chorus will sing, yes, 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 she loves you. <laughs> yes. Well, of course, they they are <laughs> emphasizing what has just been said and agreeing because they're a very agreeable group. Oh, joy, oh, rapture, unforeseen. And now the sky is all serene. <laughs> <laughs> Be warned, my messmates all who love in rank above you. For Josephine, I fall. for everyone and we are listening to HMS Pinafore and we've just had oh joy oh rapture it looks like our our tenor and our soprano our captain's daughter and our lowly sailor are going to get together is the show over it can't be at this stage we've still got plenty to get through there's got to be a saboteur surely (laughs) and who would that be well maybe it's the one with the eye patch (laughs) (laughs) oh our villain He's going to scheme and plot and tell us very clearly that this is not going to be 
You think it's all good, you two, but uh-uh. She is the captain's daughter, and you are a lowly slave. There is a frowning thunderbolt above. Yes, yes, he's going to tell the captain. Yeah. Well, while he's skulking about sharing all this ugly news, everyone else on stage seems to be quite happy with the resolution of these two lovers getting together, uh, so much so that they make a plan. So they're going to run off together. Yes, they're going to get a clergyman. And at half past ten, they're going to get in a boat. And it's going to be very romantic and very wonderful. And let's give three cheers for the sailor's bride, who casts all thought of rank aside and gives up home and fortune too for the honest love of a sailor true. Sha-la-la-la-la-la-la. <laughs> <laughs> Much singing and merriment. And that ends Act One. of HMS Pinafore by Gilbert and Sullivan. And now we have the second act of our two-act show. And it opens with the captain. Interestingly, Captain Corcoran. He brings his own guitar or mandolin, his instrument on stage, and and he sings a little bit of a, a wistful song. To the moon. Or in the moonlight, at least. <laughs> And it's little Buttercup is there, isn't she? She's 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 listening in a. Yeah. You know, he's he's he believes himself to be alone, but she's listening. Yeah. And the captain's wistful and sad, and he loves his crew, but he's very concerned that his daughter seems to be in love with just a a mere lowly mm-hmm. sailor because he he plans for her to marry this Sir Joseph, very mm-hmm. elevated man. So the captain Corcoran thinks that he's alone, and he's singing to the moon about his plight and his wayward daughter, but Little Buttercup is actually sat next to him, watching him, and she reveals that there is more to the situation than meets the eye. The duet between Little Buttercup and the captain, she sings that things are seldom as they seem, so there's more to the situation than meets the eye, that Sir Joseph might not be the high-ranking officer that they think. Well, yes, she's she's doesn't really, she's not that clear about it. 
When she says things are seldom what they seem, Captain Corcoran agrees with her, but he's so lost in his melancholy that he's not picking up on her hints at Uh all. (laughs) Yes, he's puzzled. On the libretto here, it's just Captain Puzzled, Captain Puzzled. (laughs) Well, yes, and he... He also sees her as a bit of uh, a mystic or a fortune teller. Mm-hmm. And so there's a sense that she knows things sort of in a, in a special mystical way, not just because she might know something that yeah. he doesn't yeah. know. Especially under the full moon, that helps, I should imagine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's hear the captain and Little Buttercup. Things are seldom what they seem. Skim milk masqueraders cream. Hylos pass as patent leathers. Jackdaw strut in peacock's feathers. Black sheep dwell in every fold. All that glitters is not gold. Stocks turn out to be but logs. Bulls are Inflated frogs, so they meet frequently. Rocks the wind and stalks the mill, turbidities and vicious grill, gild the farthing if you will, yet it is a farthing still. Yes, I know that is so, though to catch your drift I'm striving, it is shady. It is shady. I don't see at what you're driving, Mystic Lady, Mystic Lady. Stern conditions of mysterious, and the Mystic Lady's dealing Yes, I know. That is so. Though I'm anything but clever. I could talk like that forever. Once our cat was killed by care. Only brave deserve a fair. Very true, so they do. Winkies often good as nod. Spoils the child who spares the rod. Thirsty lambs run foxy dangers. Dogs are found in many mangers. Frequently, I agree. Poor of cat, the chestnut snatches. Worn out garments, shown your patches. Only count the chick that hatches. Men are grown up, catchy catches. Yes, I know that is so. Though to catch my drift is driving. I'll dissemble, I'll dissemble. When he sees at what I'm driving, let him tremble, let him tremble. Though a beast in Yes, I know. That is so. You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and that was Captain Corcoran and Little Buttercup in HMS Pinafore by Gilbert and Sullivan. Things are never quite what they seem, are they? Never never in Gilbert and Sullivan. Hardly ever. Hardly ever, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help that. <laughs> well, before we carry on with their story, I, I wanted to just take the opportunity to share a little bit more information about 
Arthur Sullivan and William S. Gilbert. We know they were brought together for their successful collaboration by Richard Doylecard, but it's important to remember, because we don't think of this a lot, that Sullivan was a very successful musician on his own, and Gilbert was a very successful writer and dramatist on his own. I mean, when they came together, they were, it was just an explosion of talent and success, but but they had both successes on their own. One of the things that I thought was fascinating about them was that Gilbert, a little bit before their successful collaboration started, had written a play called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Oh, well, I, I thought there's a Tom Stoppard version. Yes, yes, there, there is. is, there is. There is, yeah. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead was his breakout hit. Yes, yeah, 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 I've seen that. But it's fascinating that Gilbert had come up with sort of a parody version focusing on these two characters in 1874. He published it in that magazine where he published so many things, the magazine Fun. Yeah. Okay, well, here's my favorite bit of a synopsis I was reading, that Ophelia is betrothed to Hamlet, whose sanity is in doubt. Okay, (laughs) so far so good. For one thing, and this this is why they question his sanity, for one thing, although he's an 11th century Dane, he always dresses as King James the <laughs> first. So, I mean, just in the hands of Gilbert, you can only imagine. I, I would like to get a hold and read that play because it yeah. sounds fun. But it's it's also fun because we talked about how they influenced so much of, of what became American musical theater and yeah. subsequent comic theater. But, you know, Tom Stoppard, for goodness yeah. sakes. And uh, the Marx Brothers as well. They were supposed to have had a uh, huge impact on they uh the marx brothers mother apparently was absolutely obsessed with gilbert and sullivan and when they were children they they learned all the music to all of the and i think harpo particularly because he was oh, an exceptional musician. musician yes i think he grew up on they grew up on gilbert and sullivan and there's a lot there are references in and actually the the productions there's a london production of the mikado with jonathan miller and he uses the marx brothers set from I can't remember if it's Horse Feathers or Night at the Opera, but it references and it shows the influence that Gilbert Sullivan had on the Marx Brothers films. Something quiet. I didn't know it, but it makes perfect sense when you yeah. say it. Yeah, the ridiculousness of the humour. Yes, and the and the, the fast-talking witticisms yeah. and yeah. absurdities. And yeah. Yeah, 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 that works. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating. <laughs> no, I mean, they're incredibly, incredibly influential. And it's something that, honestly, I think sometimes you can lose sight of because there are all these amateur productions of it, but it's mm. it's wildly influential for a lot of artists. Yeah, 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 definitely. And uh, it's that satire thing, is it? The political side of things. It can, yes. be, can be used as a, like, like political cartoons, it, it can be used as a vehicle to say things that if said seriously that people could never get away with, poking fun at the establishment then and now. Yeah. Right, and they do it, they do it so consistently, but so gently. Or so yeah. good-naturedly. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, the fact that they're they're saying how this first lord of the admiralty has no qualifications other than he he just doesn't have any thoughts Keeps at all. his head down. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, and yet, you know, it all kind of it all kind of works out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and cl- and class distinctions also being yeah. another consistent topic that they take on yeah. in their shows yeah well before they got together there was a, a comic opera which is still occasionally performed that Sullivan had written 
Uh, he had a, a different librettist, of course, but he had written the music for it. And interestingly, working for his magazines as he did in 1867, William S. Gilbert happened to review the opera that Sullivan had written, oh. which I found to be fascinating. But can I read you a quote from that review? He says, Mr. Sullivan's music is in many places of too high a class for the grotesquely absurd plot to which it is wedded. It is funny here and there, and grand or graceful where it is not funny, but the grand and graceful have, we think, too large a share of honors to themselves. So it's an interesting comment that Gilbert makes because similar comments are made. Of their work? Mm Mm-hmm. I could also share with you a review of Gilbert and Sullivan's opening of HMS Pinafore. Oh, okay. This is from a Times reviewer. The reviewer says, The audience have little reason to complain of Mr. Gilbert, but the musician has, showing sympathy for Sullivan. (laughs) Mr. Sullivan accepts the difficult position thus prepared for him by his collaborator and is worthy of the highest commendation. Whenever he finds that Mr. Gilbert's humor cannot be aided by musical means, he lets well enough alone and retires to modest recitative. On the other hand, he loses no opportunity of emphasizing comic points or indicating hidden irony by a light touch of exaggeration. Here's how he ends the review. And it's, it's foreshadowing a little bit of some of the tensions that, that do develop. While recording this decided success, HMS Pinafore, this decided success of Mr. Sullivan's new work, Mr. Sullivan's new work, I note, (laughs) we cannot suppress a word of regret that the composer on whom, before all others, the chances of a national school of music depend should confine himself or be confined by circumstances to a class of production which, however attractive, is hardly worthy of the efforts of an accomplished and serious artist. Oh, so that's where the divide begins, you can feel. Interesting that in the opening period of this very successful show, he's kind of saying, tisk tisk, you're wasting yourself on these things, Mr. Sullivan. We had great hopes for you being the great English musician. Yeah. And here you are spending your time on frivolity. And I suppose across Europe, this was a similar time to grand opera. Not grand opera, but sort of serious opera. Oh, very much so, yeah. So in terms of the cultural elite would have been pegging it against the Puccinis and things of that time, wouldn't it? So so their snobbery is coming from a a sort of European perspective as much as... Well, and and Sullivan, in fact, did wish to compose some more Mm. serious operas. Um, He does ultimately compose one grand serious type opera but I mean this is where he found his greatest yeah. <laughs> success and and it's so funny that this fellow is obviously he can't see into the future but that he's concerned that Sullivan has let go of the opportunity to be influential in his country in terms of music and yet here we are talking about all the remaining influences from Arthur Sullivan yeah along those lines I think it's time to revisit the topic of knighthoods because ultimately, both these men were knighted. But in the golden period of Gilbert and Sullivan, it's very much W.S. Gilbert and Sir Arthur Sullivan. And I think most music, it's, it's always, he used the Sir, there's no question. I mean, there's possibly other composers that were knighted that you don't think of, but he absolutely used it. It was Sir Arthur Sullivan, his, his title. And it, and it was 
midway through at the, the peak of their success. So it must have caused a bit of imbalance, I'd imagine. Well, yes. I mean, these sorts of things were being mentioned already, like it, it was mm. in that review. But many thought, well, it might be okay for Arthur Sullivan to write comic opera, but Sir Arthur Sullivan, yeah, he should focus on things like oratorios and, and serious opera. But he had a contract. Comes with responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he had a contract and the Mikado was still to come, Rudigore, and several other well-known operettas of Gilbert and Sullivan. So Sir Arthur Sullivan did continue his collaboration with, with Gilbert. But Gilbert eventually was knighted as well. Not until 1907, though. So 24 years after Sullivan, a good long while. And Sullivan yeah. had already passed away at that point. Interestingly, though, it's quite a commentary on Gilbert's contribution to drama in the country because he was the first dramatist, the first writer who was knighted solely on the basis of his written works and his dramas, as opposed to other writers who had in fact been knighted, but always they had been in politics or other forms of public service. Something else as well, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it, it's a pretty significant mm. recognition for Gilbert as well, finally in 1907. Yeah. All right, back to our story. Mm-hmm. So we have left Buttercup and Captain Corcoran. Buttercup having indicated that things are not always as they seem, and Captain Corcoran repeatedly appearing puzzled by this mystery mystic lady and her mystic words under the mystic moon. Yes, and he seems he seems to kind of like her, but he's very conscious of the fact that his is an elevated position yeah. and hers is very much not so. No, she sells scissors. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, she does. (laughs) Well, Captain Corcoran is very excited about the impending marriage of his daughter and Mm -hmm. Sir Joseph. Mm -hmm. And they're all going to get together and sing about that. Because Josephine has come to the conclusion that she has a duty to honor her father's wishes. Mm -hmm. And so she will not be stealing away with her sailor. I mean, she's kind of on and off again with Ralph. Yes, I was going to say, she's not that committed, is she, to to either duty or true love. Well, it may just depend on who's spoken to her most recently, but yes. Also, one gets the feeling she possibly doesn't want to give up the spoils of the um, of the lifestyle. Yes. All those ribbons. <laughs> right. She yes. It, she she will sing about her thoughts on this, and she she's concerned about all the nice things she, in fact, will have to mm-hmm. give up if she marries a lowly sailor. Mm-hmm. Captain Corcoran and Josephine and Sir Joseph are all going to get together and sing about the why and wherefore. Who can know that love can level ranks? Which is pretty funny for them to be singing about. Because it's okay from the captain's perspective that love levels ranks if it means his daughter is marrying up. Up, yes, but not down. He thinks he's a very liberal-minded captain because he his crew likes him, he likes the crew, and... And he doesn't think rank matters. Well, except in the case of his daughter marrying a sailor, that's that's just too much. Yeah. But it's I think it's pretty cute that they're going to sing about how love levels ranks. As long as it works to their terms, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Never mind the why or wherefore. Ring 
all ranks and they're all on the same page on this aren't they well it's interesting because josephine is going along with everything and we're not sure whether or not she agrees with her father and she's taken the decision actually easy life and stick to the plan Mm. or she's just playing them the fools because she has another plan and it's not 100 percent clear i don't think it's sort of she's clearly doesn't want to lose all the spoils that she's got but then equally she loves this other man but this other man seems to be out of the window for the period of the song so we're still not sure what her intentions are and that is probably that ambiguity is deliberate I think yes not sure where she's at and now we have Dick Deadeye come onto the scene (laughs) and he has news for the captain well he's going to blow the cover isn't he he's going to tell the captain of their plan to elope all right, thanks for that information. We have a little moment where we see all of the sailors on board, and they are quietly trying to help Ralph escape at half past ten with his lady love. But the captain is there, enveloped in a mysterious cloak, and he sees what is happening. Yes, and Dick Deadeye, of course, is one of the sailors, even though he's our villain and he doesn't behave like the rest of this chorus, affirming everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so... When there's a noise, which is the captain. They say, what was that? Silent B. And then they, the chorus will say, oh, no, that was the cat. It was the cat. Don't worry about it. It's nothing. <laughs> and then he says again, what was that? And then they sing again, it was the cat. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, the captain makes himself seen and he tells his mm-hmm. daughter, no, you cannot do this. And he is ready to throw every means of punishment at Ralph and tells him how awful he's been. The chorus, but this is the point that the crew actually stand up for their fellow sailor and say that the captain can't do terrible things to Ralph because he is an Englishman. And I believe this is one of the best known songs from this show. (laughs) It's wonderfully patriotic, isn't it? Uh, yes, and it's, I mean, it, it justifies nothing other than just saying, but it's fine because he's an Englishman, so. <laughs> yeah, and they even take a moment to tell us about a few other nationalities that he is not. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't treat him poorly because he's an Englishman. Mm-hmm. And Englishmen are good. Yeah. And he's good because he's an Englishman. And yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. the logic. <laughs> <laughs> Behold me, Hey, sahing, 
for he himself has said it, and it's greatly to his credit that he is a Sympathy for ill-bred tongues. No more have his sisters, nor his cousins, nor his aunts. No more have his sisters, nor his cousins, nor his aunts. No more have his sisters, nor his cousins, nor his aunts. This is the story.
nearing the conclusion of HMS Pinafore by Gilbert and Sullivan. And right after that rousing chorus about being an Englishman, we hear the captain express his feelings that, well, I'm a very understanding captain, but this lad has gone too far. And he says Ah. that word that we referred to in the beginning of the show. The worst expletive. (laughs) It's terrible. Where do we go from here after the captain has spoken in such a way? Well, the chorus repeat it. (laughs) (laughs) Like they do. Captain Corcoran has used the terrible, terrible expletive on board. And Sir Joseph, First Lord of the Admiralty, has heard this. Oh, no. (laughs) And obviously sailors are known to be so polite normally. (laughs) (laughs) I never use bad language. Well, and the the cousins and the sisters and the aunts are also scandalized by this terrible word. And he's about to be punished as well. Yeah. So... He's about to be punished. Ralph is has been clapped in irons yeah. for his transgression. And he and Josephine are, are having a tender farewell, my love moment. Mm-hmm. And Buttercup has something to say. Well, this is her moment that she now has to um, come clean about her past, which probably makes one wonder why earlier on and she said she thought she knew something it wasn't the moment to say it then but she's choosing now that many years ago when she practiced what I read to be referred to as baby farming which I suppose is nannying <laughs> I, I meant to ask you if that was yeah. a, a, a Britishism I didn't well, know well it's, it's, it's not one I've heard <laughs> <laughs> she was taking care of, of, of a couple of children one being of low condition the other a regular patrician which yes. one presumes is high class and as is so often the case in mistaken identity the two got muddled up oh no (laughs) (laughs) oh no well let's hear buttercup uh, explain all this to us (laughs) many years ago when i was young and charming as some of you may know i practiced baby farming now this is most alarming when she was young and charming, she practiced baby farming for many years alone. Two tender babes I nursed, one was of low condition, the other of a crust, a regular patrician. Now this is my position, one was of low condition. I mix those children up, and not a creature knew it. However could you do it, someday no doubt you'll rue it. Although no creature knew it, so many years ago. In time each little waif forsook his foster mother, the well-born babe was with your 
was the other. They left their foster mother. One was brave, a brother. A captain was the other. Buttercup has come clean. It turns out that things, in fact, are not what they seem. And all this focus on rank has been turned upside down. Uh-huh. So Ralph should have been the captain and the captain should have been Ralph. Curious. But then isn't the captain the father? So how can they be the same? Maybe we don't go into that. Well, no, you, you raise an excellent point. The ages, the relative ages, by the time we get everyone coupled up, which which we are going to do in short order because yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. Gilbert and Sullivan do, the ages are kind of curious because the the young man, that the sailor, Ralph, is roughly the same age as her father. Yeah. By the yeah. terms of Buttercup's story, the two emerge from off stage, and they've, in fact, taken on this information Quite clearly, they know what their duty is, and they've switched clothes. (laughs) So Ralph is dressed as the captain, (laughs) and the captain, the former captain, is is dressed in a sailor's clothes. Uh And, well, this is a happy turn of events for true love. And in lickety-split time, we're going to wrap up this comedy with all kinds of couplings. Well, now that the captain isn't of high rank, that means that he doesn't feel duty-bound to partner with someone of his own levelling, which means that Buttercup is now on the scene and suddenly he sees her in a totally new light. So that's a nice, neat... They've been, yes, they've been kind of distantly sweet on each other. But again, when we're talking about the ages, of course, she was his nanny. Interesting. All right, what's our next coupling? Um, So Josephine and Ralph. Yes, the ones who've been in love all along. Yeah, so that's all good. And then there's one more coupling up. Because poor Sir Joseph has oh, yes, lost now. his bride. He, he can't marry Josephine because her father is so lowly. You know, he could stoop to marry a captain's daughter, but he can't stoop as far as a sailor's daughter. Oh, so he, he decides right now. Yeah. So, but we still have cousin Hebe that hasn't been really of any plot use until this moment. And then all of a sudden <laughs> she now creates a symmetry that we need for the final. So we have three happy couples. Yeah. <laughs> and again, don't worry too much about the fact that he's marrying his cousin. Yeah, it, it's yeah, a done a lot, thing. There's a lot to unpick there, isn't there? But, but it all ends in general rejoicing, and that's all we need. <laughs> oh, joy. Oh, rapture. And and we'll affirm at the end, he is an Englishman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rosie, thank you so much for joining me on our discussion of these two early Gilbert and Sullivan works. And... What fun they are. It makes me want to watch more of them. No, thank you. It's been absolutely wonderful. I've I've heard them lots of times, but to actually sort of dive down and work out what's been going on in the plot is wonderful. It's so fun. Well, enjoy the end of Gilbert and Sullivan and its rousing finale. Thanks for listening to Opera for Everyone.
to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host today, Pat Wright, joined by illustrator and opera lover Rosie Brooks. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story, and a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable, because opera is for everyone.